This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. One are things that the legislature can do on their own, and that's a number of measures around transparency um, and around outreach that the League of Women Voters have put forward. And certainly that's better than uh, nothing and certainly better than um, two-person caucus dyads off-camera Uh, at the basement of some hotel um, in Federal Way. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Move Tacoma. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. Today, I want to give a special greeting to the law enforcement officers that are monitoring this show. So, fellas on the Tacoma Pierce County Regional Intelligence Unit, uh, Sergeant John Delgado, Gary Smith, and, to- and sorry, and Detective Michael Schuscher, thanks for tuning in. Uh, my guest today is a repeat guest, Kamal, <laughs> and we're going to talk through <laughs> all the shade. Uh, and we're going to talk through redistricting and what's going on. This conversation was supposed to be a different conversation. So Evelyn on our sister show, uh, Crossing Division, had a series of conversations about what was happening with legislative maps. And so my plan was to talk to Kamau about what was happening with the congressional maps. But then the whole process kind of blew up this week. And so we'll talk through all of that as well. But first, but first, I want to start with a bit of news that came across my timeline uh, this week. Senator Doug Erickson from the 42nd Legislative District is a member of the Washington State Legislature who tested positive for coronavirus while in El Salvador. And when I saw this story, I thought it was weird. It reminded me of that Republican guy, Mark Sanford, who was like on the Appalachian Trail, but actually was having an affair down in South America, that whole thing. And so (laughs) when I saw that story, I thought it was weird. But then, Kamal, you talked me through some stuff that I had no idea about. So can you just tell us, and by the way, Kamal, Thank you for introducing me to the term, the full Giuliani. Uh, Tell me about Doug Erickson's side hustle. Yes. So Senator Doug Erickson uh, represents a district um, up north in Whatcom County, has been the has been in the legislature for a number of years. But recently, um, as I think a number of Republicans have begun to do, has adopted a side hustle of. Uh, not saying he's not a United States senator and definitely saying he holds the title of senator in the United States, uh, but has been going around advising authoritarian governments um, for a hefty, hefty price. So the biggest thing that um, you can find is the Seattle Times asked uh, Senator Doug Erickson, State Senator Doug Erickson, to uh, either step down or uh, no longer consult with the Cambodian government. Um, He was getting paid $500,000 to do election monitoring and uh, consulting with 
uh, a regime there that's been there for decades. And it's actually worth uh, just looking up that that editorial. And this is not, you know, uh, a liberal bastion, the editorial board of the Seattle Times. So the first thing that uh, they point out is uh, just a little bit of Cambodia's uh, political leader Hun Sen and his history. So they say uh, Cambodia's political leader Hun Sen has held power for more than three decades through what Human Rights Watch labeled in 2019 an abusive and authoritarian political regime. The U.S. State Department describes a litany of abuses there, including arbitrary killings carried out by the government or on its behalf, to abductions, abductions, child labor, civil liberty violations, and the White House. Uh, criticized the anti-democratic behavior of Cambodia. Um, despite those things, uh, Senator Erickson went there, took his half million uh, to consult with those leaders, and has had this relationship with the uh, government of Cambodia going back to 2016. And what's uh, especially wild is that um, other state representatives like Drew McCowan and Brandon Bick who uh, were going on a visit to Cambodia, um, uh, you know, abruptly ended that. And Erickson, um, last July, a uh, couple years ago, did it anyway um, with the U.S. ambassador. So since then, uh, he's been asked by the U.S. State Department to uh, stop doing that <laughs> and uh, has continued and has actually picked up um, and gained new clients um, down in El Salvador where there is a far right authoritarian uh, regime there that he's been consulting. So it's a very profitable side hustle. The other thing that is really wild about this is just this past session, uh, Senator Erickson was also traveling, I believe also in El Salvador and getting per diem from the state that is supposed to be uh, a, a stipend or way to allow legislators who don't live near Olympia to um, travel or work while they're traveling. The man is consulting with uh, far-right regimes outside of the United States, calling some, sometimes calling into the legislature, sometimes missing you know, uh, votes entirely, and still getting whatever it is, $100 of taxpayer money uh, every day um, while he's out there. Out here getting these bags, man. That is, a, that is a hustle and a grift. So he's in El Salvador. He tests positive for COVID. I'm assuming because he didn't say it was a breakthrough infection when, he, when like in the communications that um, he's unvaccinated. Is he still in El Salvador or has he made it back to Washington State? So the latest I could find checking the news is he still in El Salvador um, and still recovering from COVID? That's reporting from the Bellingham Herald 19 hours ago. It doesn't look um, like it's completely uh, out of possibility for him not to make the legislative session in person uh, or in Washington state uh, as it's coming up. So who knows? People should definitely be asking if he's going to continue taking per diem um, while uh, he's he's down there in El Salvador consulting with uh, dictators and uh, wannabe fascists. Yeah. You, and like you called it, going the full Giuliani. So that's not why I had you on, but I just wanted the audience to hear that story. 
Uh, what I want to talk to you about is congressional redistricting. And so the last time you were on the show, we were talking about the census, and that was actually pre-COVID as I think about it. And something that I think that I think most listeners know, but I think is worth repeating is, is that every 10 years, there's a decennial census and we count the population of the United States. And then based on that census, we reapportion representation across the country with uh, house seats. And then we redistrict, which means redraw boundaries in order to make them equal under the principle of one man or one person, one vote. And so that process has been going on. Uh, again, Evelyn has covered it very well for the legislature. And this week was supposed to be the culmination. And so... Kamal, what was supposed to happen this week? Like if things went to plan, what was supposed to have happened? Well, ideally, we wouldn't have even gotten close uh, to the deadline this week because the redistricting commission, which is made up of two partisans, two appointed by the Democratic caucuses in the legislature. So House Speaker Lauren Jenkins and... Um, and Senate leader, Andy Billig, and two Republican uh, appointees appointed by the two Republican caucuses in the Senate and the House, they could have struck a deal weeks ago or um, months ago. Uh, and they knew what the assignment was, um, but they didn't understand the assignment. And they had this uh, final business meeting that was supposed to, um, and could have included public comment, on November 15th, which was their deadline to uh, make maps and after which they lose legal authority uh, to draw the maps, 11.59 um, p.m. Pacific time on November 15th. And a curious thing happened, which is the schedule changed. The meeting wasn't just uh, an hour long. The meeting now stretched from 7 p.m to 11.59 p.m. And that was the first time that people started to get a sense that they hadn't struck a deal yet. So what was supposed to happen was they would hold that meeting, uh, be negotiating uh, over the maps the same way uh, that you can watch legislators uh, making their case about legislation uh, on TVW in front of the public. They're supposed to be doing those negotiations in front of the public. Instead, they were having uh, caucuses um, in <laughs> two-person caucuses that they called uh, caucus dyads to avoid ever having quorum, um, which would be three out of the four commissioners. So not having quorum allows them to, in their view, avoid public disclosure um, uh, or avoid public uh yeah, public disclosure laws to actually record and, and have the public see and hear what, what they're saying and what, uh, how they're going about their horse trading. That didn't happen. Um, people who tuned in saw that at 7 p.m. Um, we got a notice for more information. Uh, and every 30 minutes, uh, a staffer would come on board, was uh, I'm sure doing a great job to let the public know that um, they would be getting updates soon. It kept on getting those updates uh, up until around 9 p.m. to where I think the commissioners who, um, uh, at least a couple of them are extremely online, seeing the criticism from reporters and people on Twitter, started coming on to quip uh, about making some progress here and some vague uh, you know, optimism that they had that they would strike a deal. And soon enough by 
uh, 11.58, they were starting to hold votes. No one knew about what, no maps had been presented. Um, they uh, seemed to uh, all uh, agree. And then the final vote uh, on to actually transmit the agreement, whatever that was, um, took place after uh, 12. And I remember tweeting as I was watching the clock go by by 11.59, holy shit, they're not going to make the deadline. And sure enough, they blew the deadline. They tried to, uh, they tried really hard to uh, make it seem as though they had uh, struck a deal. And there's a great line from um, the chair congratulating uh, everyone only for them to walk it all back the next morning, admit that the deal was a framework. Um, so who knows what that means? And uh, the maps weren't released until uh, uh, the next morning. And so the biggest thing for people to understand about what that means is what the commit after November 15th, the redistricting commission are just four Washingtonians like anybody else. Uh, if they wanted to have their maps carry legal authority, they would have drew them before the deadline. Um, after the deadline, they can submit their maps to the state Supreme Court, which will take over the process and have to uh, draw maps by April 30th. They can submit their maps, but so can anybody else. And there's no reason that um, the courts should defer to them on that. Uh, Nate, you're pretty familiar with deadlines. Um, this this seemed to me like when I was in college, I would hit send on an email and, and be like, oh, here's my midterm. It's attached. Um, let me know if you have any issues with the attachment. Thank you so much. Uh, send without any attachment. Oops, I forgot my attachment. Yeah, next and then send the oops, I forgot my attachment the next morning. <laughs> well, so so here's here's my wonder. So... Okay, a couple things here is so when I teach about gerrymandering and redistricting, I talk about how Washington State is of my is one of the minority of states where this is not a partisan process or it's not done by the majority part of the legislature. Like we have a bipartisan framework where the two parties supposed to collaborate instead of having to be done by the majority, like it is in many states. So like Wisconsin, for example, has a horribly gerrified gerrified nope horribly gerrymandered map. There we go. Uh, and in theory, Washington State's not supposed to do that. What went wrong this time around? Like, what was the what was the nature of the rub, or that 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 caused for the commission to not be able to deliver a map on time? I think people have to understand that what is different um, now is we're in an environment of very high, um, nearly unprecedented partisanship and polarization, and. This commission, even though it's bipartisan, and I mentioned this back in the census because you could kind of see where uh, the roadblocks were going to be, it's a hyperpartisan commission, not a nonpartisan commission. So each of the parties have uh, a lot of pressure to to generate a map with as much partisan advantage as they can extract from the other side. And to you know, not um, make things seem like they're the same on both sides, uh, for the Democratic appointees, not only do they 
have that kind of mandate to create partisan advantage for themselves, but their base and their coalition um, has different interests. Um, uh, you know, for communities of color, they have voting rights interests. And what's different about this year is there are now multiple uh, counties that are majority Latino and Yakima County, which is, was majority minority uh, in 2010, is now majority Latino. And the census results um, show that a VRA compliant, which is the Federal Voting Rights Act compliant legislative district, must be drawn in central Washington because- Wait, so, so for, for the audience really fast, what does that mean when you say a VRA, VRA compliant district? There must be a district in which non-white voters can elect the candidates of their choice because uh, their uh, population um, growth and population numbers are so high and their rate of representation is uh, so low that to not draw uh, maps um, would be to disenfranchise those voters. So for example, in Washington, and that is in and of itself is a very weak tool for voting rights because for sure. example, in Washington state, the census results let us know that communities of color are you know, over a third of the state, 37% of the state, and in only one out of 49 legislative districts are communities of color, the majority of the eligible electorate, which is a 37. Um, and then there are four uh, majority minority districts, including one in Yakima, the, the 14th, but which the electorate is majority white. So that's the, the other thing that they uh, had to do. And of course, in the kind of level of polarization we have, it's also racialized. So the Republican Party isn't exactly a champion of uh, the voting rights of communities of color um, uh, right now, um, but the Democrats are. And what's really telling is the first round of maps that were drawn. So that each of the commissioners drew their maps. Uh, an assessment by Dr. Barreto at the UCLA Voting Rights Project uh, found that all four maps, uh, both Republican maps, both Democratic maps, likely violated the voting rights of communities of color in central Washington. Now, I do just have to say, um, my organization, Washington Community Alliance, has a project of our members called the Redistricting Justice for Washington Project. We also drew maps um, uh, right around the same time. I actually think we drew our maps before the commissioners, um, well before the commissioners, and our maps happen to comply with the Voting Rights Act. So it's not a difficult thing, but what is difficult is trying to uh, make sure you protect all of the incumbents at the legislature and the congressional sure. delegation, create as much of a partisan advantage for your party as possible, uh, comply with state law, comply with federal law, and then also not violate um, the voting rights of communities of color. And those first round of maps tell you where the priorities were uh, for both parties. Um, you know, but to their credit, the Democratic commissioners did go back and revise their maps and create uh, ones that were compliant with the Federal Voting Rights Act. The Republican commissioners refused to revise their maps. And in fact, they put out a memo uh, stating uh, more or less that another consideration um, for uh, the courts, the federal courts, shouldn't just be the voting rights of communities of color, 
but should also be uh, the equal protections clause, which is to say, um, if you draw a majority minority district, um, say that's single race, a majority uh, Latino by electorate, um, you might actually be doing reverse racism by not giving equal protections uh, to voters regardless of race, um, which is, uh, you know, uh, the, the basic gist of, of that memo. And then they also say some things about compactness and, and whatever else. But that's kind of the, the lay of the land. I think, you know, it's telling that it all kind of came down to that. Federally, with the congressional maps, um, they seem to land on uh, the basic status quo um, with, you know, the input of the Redistricting Justice for Washington Coalition. So even the compromise maps that they came up with, if you look at the ninth congressional district, uh, which is Washington's only majority minority district. Um, and for listeners, geographically, where's the ninth? So the ninth is... Um, gets is mostly in uh, King County and uh, goes from Seattle down to Federal Way and uh, east of Bellevue. It's represented by uh, Adam Smith, uh, who is white and has represented the district since it became majority minority in 2010. And that was the big fight that mm -hmm. was the new congressional district and would Washington get a majority minority district. Um, and they were able to resolve those problems um, pretty well. But also there's just, there's 10 congressional districts. You can kind of see an easy balance. But even then it kind of shows the limits of our single choice elections and winner take all system because communities of color are nearly, you know, are 37% in the states and nearly 40%. And only 10% of the congressional districts are majority minority. And of course, because communities of color live everywhere. so it's very difficult to create um, that many majority minority districts uh, when geography has to, is your organizing principle. So now we see um, what happens with uh, the, the state Supreme Court and um, how communities will uh, be able to secure their voting rights in central Washington. So this is quite wonky. And so I'm just wondering, could you lay out for the audience, why does this matter? Like we're talking about these maps, like I, there's somebody listening right now who's like, well, Washington State's a blue state and like I'm represented by Lori Jenkins, I'm fine. Why does this matter in the big scheme of things? You know, this is maybe the most uh, clear example of the systemic racism in um, our democracy, which then produces downstream systemic um, and racist impacts on all the policies. So just think for a moment that um, Washington State recently had its birthday. Um, and since its founding, it has never elected a black state legislator outside of Puget Sound. Now there are black people who live outside of Puget Sound, um, but it's never been able to, to elect that. If you think about that in the context of the fact that there's only one um, uh, Latino um, in central Washington, uh, Republican uh, Alex Ibarra, um, who uh, represents um, that community in central Washington, uh, that's really telling. And when you think about that in the context of things like the uh, separatist 
uh, movement to divide Washington State from Western and 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 Central and Eastern Washington, um, you can see that basically on the other side of the mountains, uh, there's been a long project to disenfranchise communities of color um, and create, uh, you know, a sort of white ethno state in which communities of color, because they're not um, densely compact enough and because they don't compose a majority of uh, the, the population of the electorates, um, do not have uh, proportional power in how uh, public decisions are made and how decisions in government are made. And the redistricting process is just one of the many tools uh, that are used to disenfranchise communities of color and maintain um, and perpetuate systemic racism in, in our democracy. And I think, you know, both parties are complicit in that, but with to very different uh, degrees um, and for different uh, for different reasons, you know, one has to balance a coalition that actually includes um, voters, uh, non-white voters, and the other doesn't have to think about um, those voters of color or their voting rights really at all. So I want to take a break here. And when we come back, I want to talk about what the Supreme Court is going to be doing and how this, like what the end game looks like from your point of view. I want to talk about... Um, how this process has gone astray and kind of where things sit. And also you mentioned some democratic reforms that I would love to talk about, about how first pass the post systems create this process we have with two parties and all these kind of mishaps. And so let's, let's capture all that in segment two. We will be back. Hello, friends. This is Marguerite Martin, creator of MoveToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties, and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. And you can rest easy knowing you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you want to learn more, visit MoveToTacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show today. The Nerd Farmer podcast is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. We are a network of podcasts who are trying to improve the civic culture and improve the civic knowledge in the city of Tacoma and Pierce County. We are elevating voices you don't hear elsewhere and telling stories and diving deep into issues. If you enjoy what you're listening to, I'm going to ask you to consider two things. One, write a review. 
if you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever you listen to, unless you write a review, it helps people find the show, helps grow the audience, helps us talk to more people. Uh, in addition, uh, if you enjoy the show, I'm going to ask you to think about joining Channel 253 as a member. A membership is $4 a month or $40 a year. And membership gets you access to our member-only Slack and Doug's Authorker podcast. In the Slack right now, uh, there's a host of conversations happening in the book section. Uh, I picked some great book recommendations. A bunch of folks have just finished reading a, uh, An Ugly Truth, the book on Facebook that we're doing for the Nerd Farm Reads book club. By the way, if you read Nugly Truth, um, get those tweets in. We're recording that podcast in early December. And so the other thing I'll say is, is that we're trying to also move some of the goodness of the Channel 253 Slack into uh, kind of the mainstream so everybody can see it. And so we've been doing weekly, tw weekly Twitter spaces where a show host or a member of the network has been hosting conversations. And we're recording this on Saturday at about 10 a.m. Liverpool is beating Arsenal 1-0 at halftime. And Kamau, I think, actually will be helping uh, Evelyn with the one for this week. And so all those are available to you. So again, review the show, please, and join Channel 253 as a member. It is $4 a month or $4 a year. And you can do that at channel253.com slash membership. All right, Kamau, let's get to it. Yeah, and shout out to Liverpool, uh, leading one zero. It's always a good so it's always a good day to watch United lose, and it's even better day to watch Arsenal lose to us as well. So I'll take yes. Mosala so, is uh is is out there. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen you've seen the the big study that came out trying um, oh, Mosala's yeah. reduced uh, Islamophobia in London by like fifteen percent. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, so many kids at my school have the Sala haircut. I'm like, please don't do have the haircut, but they're rocking it. All right. So this redistricting thing. What? So you said the congressional maps were kind of pat. One of the things I was curious about is, is we're talking about that middle part of the state. And in another lifetime, that was Jay Inslee's district. And like mm -hmm. demographics have shifted there a lot. Um, I don't think the typical Washingtonian, unless they visit the middle of the state, knows how heavily Hispanic Latino Yakima, Toppenish, Sunnyside, and Pasco have become. Uh, they're like a small Arizona or New Mexico, like enclave within the state, and it's largely agricultural workers, and then second generation families who establish themselves. Who's the current representative there in the House? So in uh, Yakima, we have this uh, great video up on YouTube that people can find at the um, Washington Community Alliance uh, YouTube page. But since the creation of the first majority minority district in Yakima after 2010, after um, Yakima becomes uh, a majority minority county, um, all six uh, state legislators, two senators, the four representatives that, rep that represent the 14th to the 15th legislative district uh, have been white. Um, all six have remained. Uh, Republican. All six have, um, you know, uh, not not faced um, any large uh, challenges. And one of the things that's uh, especially sad, one of our uh, uh, big leaders, both in the census and redistricting, um, a Yakima Nation leader, Matt Tamaskin, who uh, passed away earlier this year, after those maps were drawn, he ran for state representative um, in, in the following uh, cycle and uh, wasn't able to really get traction in part because the reservation, mm -hmm. the Yakima Nation, 
was uh, split in half. And uh, now, uh, not only is Yakima uh, majority, minorities majority Latino, Adams County um, is majority Latino. And uh, those folks have been, um, in fact, disenfranchised for uh, years um, and not been able to elect the candidates of their choice. Um, and the maps that these commissioners uh, drew after the deadline would almost certainly perpetuate that. And there's two reasons why to, to touch on there. One is they tried to be kind of clever by half and say that they had complied with the Voting Rights Act and created a majority Latino um, CVAP district. So that is citizen voting age population, which just means people who are eligible to vote or the eligible electorate. That is majority Latino um, by 0.02%. It is a legislative district that's no longer the 14th, it's now the 15th. Um, uh, which means it would have its state senator elected on uh, midterm cycles, because in Washington state, the odd numbered districts have their cycles on midterm years where there's lower turnout. The even districts have their uh, state senators and, and their four-year cycles um, lined up with the presidential years. So that's interesting. Um, and it's a district that, you know, I think the commissioners wanted to sell because it went for Biden by, I think, a half percent, but went for Culp by um, five percent. Um, the same scholar that found all four of the of the commissioner's maps to have likely violated the Voting Rights Act um, put out a memo this week stating that this district uh, also likely voted, um, violated the Federal Voting Rights Act. Because it's not just that you meet, uh, you get over the 50% mark and uh, for an eligible electorate being um, majority uh, non-white. It's that that district has to be able to enable um, the communities uh, who've been historically disenfranchised there. So in this case, the Latino communities to elect the candidate of their choice. And if you're doing that by picking up and kind of cherry picking a bunch of census blocks and precincts where they there are eligible people to vote, but they have um, very, very low uh, turnout, then that district does not allow um, the Latino community to elect the candidate of their choice. It's also very interesting to me that in order to draw that district and you know, at least they half listened to, to, to folks by keeping the Yakima Nation whole. They put the Yakima Nation kind of a deep red um, legislative district uh, over in, in the 14th. And so, you know, for the past 10 years, having had um, no uh, people of color um, representing the uh, communities of color in Yakima, it's led to really disastrous decisions. There's also, people might remember uh, Senator Honeyford, who is well known in our state for making um, very racist comments, uh, uh, especially about the, the farm worker community there. And uh, he's the guy that uh, represents, uh, has represented these communities for the last, uh, the last 10 years. So 
um, that's uh, really what uh, na we know uh, caused the that the commission couldn't agree on is the voting rights of people of color. Has there been, so I'm thinking about the different representatives around the state at the congressional level. I'm thinking about Dan Newhouse in Central Washington. Like you said, he's, he does not match the, the constituents he represents. Uh, was there an attempt by the Republicans to either protect or punish Jamie Herrera Butler? She is the House member down in Yakima on the Oregon border. So, okay, for folks who are listening and don't have this kind of figured out really fast, uh, in Washington state, the congressional districts in the western part of the state are smaller because they're more urban areas and tend to be Democratic. And on the eastern side of the, of the state, they are larger, more rural, tend to be Republican. But the exception is down in southwest Washington, Vancouver, uh, the suburbs of Portland. That's represented by Herrera Butler. She's a Republican, but voted for impeachment. And so I'm wondering, was there any, uh, any shenanigans with her district at all? You know, by my tell, um, it looks like they were able to shore up that district um, to get to a place where it's not um, quite competitive. Um, okay. The last few cycles, uh, you know, she was only winning by uh, a couple percent there. And then it looks like they land on a compromise to uh, have the 8th Congressional District uh, be pretty tight and competitive, and then did some incumbency protection um, around uh, everywhere else and kind of clean up some of the, the lines. I think because our federal elections are so uh, partisan and predictable, um, there just wasn't much that could be changed um, around... Uh, around those, those congressional districts. And I'd say like, that is uh, at least one place where they were able to, if they had met the deadline, they, they would have met kind of their, their own um, definition of success. But I would say mm -hmm. e even then, the uh, fact that communities of color only get one congressional district um, out of 10, and white people who are just uh, a little uh, less than two thirds of the state get nine out of 10 uh, 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 congressional districts is uh, emblematic of the fact that these structures for uh, administering elections and um, uh, functioning democracy really don't do it, um, at least for communities of color. One more question, and you mentioned it just now in your answer about the 8th. So for most of like my political awareness, the 8th was a swing district represented by Dave Reichert, who was the former King County Sheriff. Uh, it got redrawn in the last round of uh, redistricting. And now is represented by Kim Schreier, I want to say. And it was rated from, from Cook as a Democrat plus one district. Uh, Based on projections, is that going to be moving more toward that way or is that going to be moving? Well, because I guess, is that moving more in towards being a safe democratic seat or is that going to remain more with toss up? Uh, well, I think for Cook's report, it might be a plus one democratic district, but now we are in an uh, environment which I think for the first time um, in 
almost 10 years, or at least since 538 has been having their polling averages um, and been doing this test uh, about which party um, you would prefer uh, to vote for. I think we're in something like a Republican plus eight plus 10 uh, environment. Plus ten. So, you know, who- well, and, and, and come out really fast, just, just, just for listeners, 538 conducted polling and talked to Americans and just generic ballot, 10% more people said that they were going to vote for a Republican than a Democrat. Uh, in the off the record episode that Doug and I are going to record, we'll talk about what happens in midterm elections. But the historical pattern that we see is a president wins an election and then basically they have a two-year window in which they enact policy and then they lose in the midterms. And so this is a moment of urgency for Democrats to get work done before this next round of elections where Republicans are expected to take over the House and the Senate. Sorry, I interrupted. Continue. Yeah. And where, you know, um, they tend to translate uh, that power into uh, passing laws, uh, appointing judges um, have their view. So, for example, this was the uh, first redistricting cycle where the Supreme Court of the United States has greenlit partisan uh, gerrymandering as um, completely uh, up to the states, not um, something that they think is uh, uh, violates the the constitution or or voting rights, and I think you know that's especially telling because when th- those those partisan gerrymanders are then used to perpetuate um, unfair advantages for a party that very explicitly um, does not believe it needs to comply with. Uh, the uh, the Federal Voting Rights Act does need to uh, comply or provide or secure um, the voting rights of non-white voters. Um, you know, they can say um, uh, and use rhetoric that says that they care about that stuff, but whenever they have power, um, they show themselves to uh, not be willing to um, materially improve those things. I will say maybe one more note on the congressional maps because there's still a lot of analysis to come out. But the things that I would especially be looking for um, is, uh, you know, how uh, they like, especially in the congressional district that's majority minority. Um, you know what those those maps look like for the the Muckleshoot Reservation. Um, mm. what they look like for the Chinatown International District, um, which is uh, very densely uh, of people of color, and um, and whether uh, it'll have an electorate that is also majority minority, or at least one that can become uh, a majority minority uh, electorate in this decade. Um, and that's, that's going to be... Uh, critical consideration for for the courts as well. Here's one thing, um, you know, as we try to take a look at what the court needs to do, uh, this is not the outcome that the most powerful interests in the state uh, would have wanted, because this is a terrible outcome for incumbents. Um, If you're an incumbent, the commissioners are great because they can take you into consideration, even though it's not uh, in the law to consider 
incumbents. And in fact, everybody implicitly knows that voters uh, hate that kind of uh, party uh, gamesmanship. Um, so now that where it goes to the court, and one of the reasons that I think you hear the commissioners um, urging the court to adopt their maps is because those maps uh, only district out about five of the, you know, nearly 150. I think there's, you're looking at 140 something uh, legislators. The court doesn't have- 47, yeah. Right, doesn't have to consider any of that. And um, I think in particular, we were able to draw, for example, so here's one example, we were able to draw a majority minority district in Snohomish County. Now you can only do that if you exclude, say for example, Senator Marco Leas, who lives uh, very close to the water uh, front and where there, um, it's a very white um, <laughs> uh, community of people who live there at, at the waterfront. If you have to go over and scoop them up, you can't create a majority minority district. Notably, uh, his seatmate, State Representative Lillian Ortiz Self, she lives where um, there would have been a majority minority district. The commission did not draw a majority minority district in Snohomish County, something that they could have done. Um, I think if you look at the legislative maps and you look at the city of Bellevue, so for folks listening, that's East uh, King County, you can draw a district that centers and um, is based on this majority minority city, um, very uh, heavily uh, Asian and, and Pacific Islander. But instead, Bellevue is split three ways because you have a whole lot of Democratic representatives who all live in Kirkland because they like the waterfront property in Kirkland. And you know, it's the same story over, over in Redmond. And so if um, the, the court is really serious, they're not going to consider those sorts of things and they're going to just uh, draw maps that are fair for communities um, and um, where incumbency uh, takes a, a, a backseat. Um, uh, to those priorities. Uh, to that end, one of the early maps the Republicans put out cut Senator Nobles, who's been newly elected over Steve O'Ban, cut her out of her own district and was going to then move her home, I think, into the 27th. Uh, did that end up going through on the Republican maps were proposed? Or, or we kind of don't know because there's all these weird versions of them out there. Um, from what we can tell, it looks like the compromise um, that they landed on um, fixed that, that issue. And um, very few people ended up being districted out uh, at all. Um, but again, for the court, these are just four people who produced sure. uh, a map for them to consider. And if you're listening to this and want to go to Dave's redistricting app and draw your own map, um, that's great. You could submit that. And uh, Justice Gonzalez and the rest of the court um, should you know consider both uh, equally and fairly. Um, as far as the process, the court now doesn't um, have to do any public outreach. Um, you know, can just draw their their own maps on their own. It's uh, really up in there, and it's going to be up to the court to first release what their process is going to be. Um, a lot of communities are going to be urging them to do uh, public outreach and create the kind of uh, inclusive and transparent process that this commission failed uh, to create. And that's going to include uh, 
uh, a couple of components about how, who and if they appoint staff to draw those maps, who those people are, what they're considering. And, uh, but it seems like they're pretty serious because two days ago, uh, Justice Gonzalez sent out a court order. Um, and it's a burner, by the way. It is a straight burner. It's like, go ahead. It's, it's, you, can, you can tell when, when a judge or a lawyer is just like tired of stuff. Like it reads like he's very tired. Oh, absolutely. I think um, the fact that uh, the commission kept them up um, uh, on midnight and they had to produce a statement the next day, uh, this court is, is not happy with them. So here's here, to give you a little bit of taste. It starts off with, um, uh, whereas the redistricting commission sent a letter to the Supreme Court indicating the commission was, quote, unable to adopt a district plan by the midnight deadline, but the commissioners, quote, did agree on a framework for a redistricting plan and that the, and that the quote, task is now done, end quote, um, that's the first. That's the first paragraph. Is uh, air quotes of the commissioner's <laughs> statement, uh, and then going on to state uh, some facts, where uh, you know Supreme Court Justice uh, Gonzalez says, whereas it is unclear what actions the commission took prior to midnight on November fifteenth where it is unclear what actions the commission took after midnight on November 15th. Now, therefore, hereby ordered, um, and uh, we can skip down to some of the the case law here, uh, that the redistricting commission is directed to file a sworn declaration by noon on Monday, November 22nd, 2021, with a detailed timeline of events of November 15th, 2021, and November 16th, 2021, relevant to the commission's compliance with its obligations under Article 2, Section 43, subsections 6 and 11 of the Washington State Constitution. This should include the timing of any votes taken by the commission, exactly what vote was exactly what each vote was regarding and any other actions taken by the commission relevant to their constitutional and statutory obligations. Um, Smoke, smoke, smoke. Here's a fun fact um, that uh, listeners might not know. Justice Gonzalez was uh, appointed by, was appointed to the Supreme Court um, uh, a number of years ago and then had to run because in Washington state, our (laughs) Supreme Court uh, justices are elected. When he ran, he ran against um, a uh, white candidate for um, that seat who did not campaign, did not advertise, mm-hmm. did not, um, you know, have a campaign website, did not uh, do mails, did not do any uh, public events. And um, even though uh, Justice Gonzalez won, that other uh, white candidate um, won the majority of counties in Washington state. And it became a big example of racialized uh, polarization um, and racialized voting in Washington state and particularly in Yakima County and central Washington. And then here's the big T, the legislative district that this commission compromised on that all four commissioners say they support, which is majority Latino um, um, by citizen voting age population by 0.02%. That district would have voted 
for that unqualified white guy who didn't campaign over Justice Gonzalez. And we know this from a memo uh, written by Professor Barreto at the ACLU Voting uh, Rights Project, who, before he was at the ACLU, was teaching at UW, studying racialized, studying racialized voting in Washington state and was the scholar that studied Justice Gonzalez's race. So this is a court that is very familiar with sure. uh, racialized voting patterns in Washington state and specifically central Washington. They're very familiar about the fact that Hispanic surnames um, perform less um, for no, for you know, no reason other than um, just uh, systemic racism, and I don't think um, that this is a court that is going to think the commission's clever uh, solution to um, their mandate to comply with the Voting Rights Act was actually all that clever. Um, yeah. So uh, we'll see what happens next. We'll find out um, what exactly took place on November fifteenth. Um, there were some commissioners that were apparently at a Federal Way hotel <laughs> during uh, that that night. So we'll get to find out what hotel they were staying at, what, what was going on. Um, and then hopefully um, communities will get uh, maps um, that, you know, respect their voting rights. Um, tribes will get maps that respect their sovereignty. and. Sure. Um, uh, we'll uh, have to think about how not to do this again in 2030, uh, in 2031, when Washington state is due to gain a congressional district and Washington state is due to gain, uh, to have another um, VRA uh, compliant uh, legislative district, also in central Washington, in central Washington around the Tri-Cities. Um, which will make this whole process look like a well-orchestrated cakewalk um, where, you know, uh, there wasn't a new congressional district and it was very clear uh, mm. what areas the commission had to pay attention to to uh, not violate uh, the constitutional um, voting rights, constitutionally protected voting rights of communities of color in our state. Uh, Kamal, if folks want to follow you and your work online, where should they look? For redistricting matters, please go to redistrictingjusticewa.org. Um, and there you're going to find the maps that our communities were uh, uh, able to make. Um, and for especially the subject on Yakima that's been so central, there's been two maps. Uh, surprisingly, they both uh, comply with uh, the Federal Voting Rights Act. Also, I want to say that um, the first maps that we drew before the Redistricting Commission, and these were our community organizations and community leaders from the Yakima Nation, from um, leaders in the densely Latino Yakima Valley, not only did those maps um, perform um, for those communities, it was a multiracial coalition map, complied with the Voting Rights Act and Harvard's Campaign Legal Center did an assessment of those community-made maps. And they had a perfect 100% score on, um, not on nonpartisan bias. So which is to say that they weren't biased against uh, any party. Um, 
so, you know, these things are uh, possible, but people should check out the redistricting justice for Washington maps, um, the news updates. That's where you're going to um, find what processes the, the court should follow and what uh, communities, um, what organizations working in communities of color every day uh, think of about these issues. People can donate to our work at wacommunityalliance.org. So wacommunityalliance.org. Um, smash that donate button. Um, <laughs> this is really hard uh, work and took a lot of intentionality going back to the census to make sure that we had accurate figures for um, this sort of redistricting fights and exactly the kind of, uh, you know, data uh, wizardry that um, political operatives uh, like like to pull to uh, undermine the, the power of communities of color. And uh, then people can uh, follow my takes on Twitter at uh, Kamau Mau Mau, K-A-M-A-U-M-A-U-M-A-U. Uh, thanks for having me on, Pops. <laughs> Son, it was my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Wakanda forever, y'all. Be vaccinated, get a booster, be safe about the stuff, man. It's no joke. Wear a mask in indoor spaces. Convict the police killed Manuel Ellis and go Sounders. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.